We're going to be looking at verses 9 and 10 today, but we're going to start reading in verse 6. And just before we do that, if you recall from the last couple of weeks where we've been, uh, we were in verses uh, uh, 6 and 7, exhorted to continue by faith and in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, So you're saying there, Paul, that Christians are to stay put in the eternal truths of Christ and the gospel being built up and rooted there. And then last week we looked at verse 8, where we were exhorted to not be taken captive by philosophies and empty deceit, by that which is not in accordance with Christ. Ideas, worldviews, philosophies, and so on, not in accordance with Christ. But one of the beautiful things about the scriptures and we see it here in Colossians, is that we're not just sternly warned about the things that we ought to do and the things that we ought not to do. We're not just sternly warned about the do's and the don'ts. Make sure you keep on this way. Make sure you don't do that. And just list of of things to do and, and not to do. Rather, we are motivated as the Lord's people and led into obedience by the richness of the salvation that's already been granted to believers as a gift of God's grace. Paul has already, in Colossians, in chapter 1, laid out for us the glory of Christ Jesus and of the redeeming work of God in and through his Son, in saving and forgiving believers. So, if you go back, you can see that, talking about being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. He's spoken of how formerly being hostile in mind, but now being reconciled through the body of Christ's flesh by his death that we might be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before the Lord. He does this in verse 9 to 15. Again, he continues doing this. So, so or sorry, back up to verse one, chapter 1 again, verse 15. He, he proclaims the greatness of who Christ is and what he has done for us uh, in verses 21 to 23. And then now in chapter 2, verses 9 to 15, he does this once again. He lays out these great gospel truths about what it is that the Lord has done for his people. And so he's going to yet again address these philosophies that he warns about in verse 8. He's going to go into them in more detail starting in verse 16. But before he does that, Paul cannot help himself but burst forth into these gospel truths. These realities that believers are rooted in, in God's gracious redemption. And he's doing this, he's appealing to these truths, aiming at the heart of believers uh, to bring about motivation. He's providing reasons why these empty philosophies are empty and of no use and should be avoided at all costs. These gospel truths are aimed at the heart which are meant to strengthen believers and encourage us to press forward, to press on doing the works that we're called to. Whether those works are staying true to Christ and to his gospel and not being carried off by false teaching, or whether those works are something like parenting well, things that he's going to get to in chapter 3. It's always exhortation to obey that is motivated by gratitude for all that we've already received in Christ as a gift of God's grace. And so these calls to remain true to Christ, to remain true in these things, to, to not be taken captive These aren't heavy, weighty matters for believers that we're just bludgeoned with by the Lord. Uh, Rather, these are always rooted in 
what he's already done for us in Christ and how there's nothing more to be added to this. And so this is where he's going to go now in verses 9 to 15. These are the, this is what he's going to, the point he's going to make. He's going to provide the grounds, the reasoning why there's nothing to be had in these empty philosophies. So let's read this together. Hopefully you'll see this as we read it. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 6, chapter 2, and go to verse 15. It says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It's helpful and I think important uh, to be honest with ourselves about the reality of temptation, including the temptation to compromise our beliefs, the temptation to deny Christ, and even in some cases, temptation to abandon the faith altogether. Jesus himself told a parable about this, the parable of the soils, or the, the sower. Some will start out saying they believe, make a profession of faith in Christ, but will fall away. Specifically, he says, when persecution comes, or when cares of the world choke out any fruit. We live in an age and a time in Western civilization where Christianity is viewed as a threat to the good of mankind. And with this thinking comes pressure, comes temptation, pressure to move on, to deny Christ, to deny certain parts at least of the scriptures, of his word. And so we have our, our natural desire for self-preservation, and it's not pleasant to be, uh, to be mocked or derided or to have your views ripped or to, for people to think you a fool or whatever it might be. We have some natural desire for self-preservation. This mixes with our sinful fear of man, and it combines to bring about often, sometimes, tremendous pressure, pressure to compromise. Additionally, error is so often cloaked in pleasant garb. It's often hidden within a, an air of plausibility, as Paul has already recognized. And we know also, we see here, that people can drift away from the truth without even be, being fully aware of what's going on. 
being taken in by that which seems to be good. This is what verse 8 was warning about. And now in verses 9 to 10, Paul gives some reasons why those other philosophies are dangerous and ultimately completely unnecessary. He gives reasons why Christ is enough, why we don't need to move on to other things. Reasons why the gospel that the Colossians and that you, if you have received it, is sufficient for your salvation. It's motivation for staying the course, for continuing on in Christ as you've received him. And so this text, as we look at verses 9 and 10, gives us two things to consider when tempted to compromise or to believe unbiblical philosophies or to abandon the faith. Now, two things to consider, namely the, the person of Christ first and the provision of Christ. The person of Christ, who he is, and the provision of Christ, what he has done for you. So let's look first at the person of Christ. So immediately after warning in verse 8 about worldviews and philosophies that are not in accordance with Christ, Paul elaborates again, having already exalted Christ in chapter 1, verse 15 to 20, in some of the highest language about the Lord Jesus in the Bible, he again elaborates and returns to the person of Jesus, to who he is. Why is it that we do not need more than Christ when it comes to our salvation? Why mustn't we improve upon what Christ has accomplished or said and taught? Why do we stay put, continuing on, as we received him? Well, for one thing, Paul says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's a remarkable statement. In him, Christ, the whole fullness, or all the fullness of deity, of the divine nature, dwells bodily or in bodily form. There's many people who will concede that Jesus was a historical person, there was, that there was a man in, from Nazareth named Jesus who lived in the first century, he walked the earth, he taught, he had disciples, and so on, and yet they really ultimately deny that he is in his person anything more than that, just a man. Now, if that was true, and if that's all he was, a man, even if he was a very, very fine man, the best of men, then one might think that maybe there's something else we need than just what he has done and said. Perhaps another teacher, perhaps another source of wisdom. Maybe we should take some of what Jesus said and combine it with other teachings. Maybe that would even seem wise. Wiser than hanging our hopes on one man. And then if, if someone is convinced of spiritual beings like angels, uh, beings greater than men, then maybe someone might think, well, maybe they would be of some help to us as well. Maybe they should even have a, we should have a certain amount of worship or reverence toward them. Certainly this was something that was being taught at Colossae, we'll see in verse 18. And so how important, how helpful, how necessary to remember and consider the person of Jesus, who, who he is. And Paul very plainly states here in verse 9 that he is fully or truly God in human form. He says that the whole 
fullness of deity dwells in Christ. Not just a part of it. He's not just partly God. He's not just God-like. He's not half God and half man. Nor is he a lower tier of God. Rather, he says here, the whole fullness of deity dwells in him. Everything, everything that pertains to the divine nature belongs to Christ, dwells in him. There is no attribute of God that he does not possess. This is what the whole fullness is getting at. He, he wasn't just even given a dosage of divinity or the divine nature as some lesser God. The whole fullness of deity dwells in him. Think of an attribute of God that you can remember and recall from the scriptures. His omniscience. It belongs to him. His power. God's might. His eternality. All of this belongs to the Lord Jesus. This is why uh, good formulations of the Trinity speak of the three persons sharing in the one divine essence. It's why the Nicene Creed speaks of Jesus as being God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Because all the fullness of deity dwells in him. But Paul doesn't simply speak of divinity here in Jesus. He also says that this dwelled in Christ bodily or in bodily form. Now in the years following the, the Nicene Creed, uh, teaching arose and was becoming more popular that Jesus just possessed one nature. That is, he was a blend of humanity and divinity, into one, and he just had the one nature. He's one person with one nature. It's kind of a mixture of the divine and the human into one, one nature. And this is problematic because it makes him ultimately not truly God and not truly man. He would be some third type of being. If he's not really doesn't really have a true human nature or a true divine nature, then he's some mix of both. And this is not what the scriptures teach. And so there, a council was convened, the Council of Chalcedon, to respond to this error that had arisen. And they formed what's known as the Chalcedonian Creed or the Chalcedonian Definition in 451. And they, they weren't trying to establish something new. Uh, they acknowledged right in the confession that this is what they understand the scriptures to teach and what has been believed right from the beginning, from the apostolic fathers through to their day in 451. So it was this other incursion that was the error, and they were establishing in this creedal form what had been passed down and what the majority church had believed. And they put together a statement that really quite brilliantly systematizes and summarizes the biblical texts which speak of Christ's full divinity and his true humanity. And I don't think it's really ever been improved upon. The great confessions, even in the time of the Protestant Reformation, 1500s and into the 1600s, even those great confessions and our own doctrinal statement used language from Chalcedon, from that creed. 
that creed speaks of Christ as being one person with two natures. He's not two persons, as if there's a divine Christ and a, and a human Christ. He's, he, he has, he's one person, and he has two natures joined into that one person of the eternal Son of God. Now, nothing else is like this. Everything else has one nature. You have a human nature. I have a human nature. There's nothing else really to compare this to. But I think this is what the scriptures teach. If you think of Philippians chapter 2, it speaks of the Son emptying himself. This great text. The Son emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It says, and being found in human form. So there's some confusion about this Jesus emptying himself. Some people teach and believe that he actually emptied himself of divinity. He somehow became less than God in that moment or got rid of his divinity in somehow or some way or some form of it. But that's not what this is teaching. That's not what Philippians 2 teaches. It reveals that his emptying and his humility is seen in that the eternal Son of God who shares in the divine nature adds to his person a human nature as he comes to earth in the form of a man and becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So his, humil- his humiliation, his humility here, is re- adding to himself a human nature, which for the s- eternal Son of God to do is remarkably humble act and move. So his divinity is not lost, or it's not lessened, as some might say. He empties himself by taking to himself a human form. And so he is and was truly man and truly God. Working in and through his human nature to bring about redemption for man. And yet upholding the universe in and through his divine nature at the same time. Both of these things happening in the one person of the Son. And so this is why the Chalcedonian Creed and great confessions of Christology since then speak of him as being perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. It goes on to speak of uh, as to his manhood being like us in every way except sin, which calls to mind the writing of in, in Hebrews. So this is who the Lord Jesus is. Now Paul's main emphasis here in Colossians 2, I I do think, is is to point to to his divinity. uh, That he's not a mere man, but rather that the fullness of God dwells in him. And then in the second half of verse 10, just skipping over the first half for a moment, uh, speaking again of the person of Jesus, Paul says he is the head of all rule and authority. Now this follows, this flows logically from the fact that he is divine. And he possesses the fullness of deity. There is nobody above him. He is preeminent, as Paul has already said, in all things, as the firstborn of creation and as the firstborn in redemption. 
This, this, these words rule and authority, they almost certainly refer to angelic and demonic beings, to spiritual powers. And the word head very clearly means that he possesses authority over these other beings. In fact, Paul will go on to speak of Christ disarming and triumphing over these rulers and authorities down in verses 14 and 15, which we'll get to in the coming weeks. And so the Colossians, they're being tempted to worship angels. We'll see that again down in verse 18. These other philosophies are being brought in. These exalted angelic beings are being placed before them as beings that are in some way worthy of worship. And Paul's correcting this. Now, we, we have lived in a very, I, I would say, anti-supernatural age uh, where philosophical naturalism is, is everywhere. It's just this kind of a closed system. God does not intervene in anything. It's just sort of natural causes, and it just life just kind of happens, and things evolve, and there's really nothing supernatural about this world. And yet, the influence of Eastern religions continues to rise here in the West. It seems increasingly common, just for example, to hear of, well, for one example, Reiki practitioners right here in our own town. Likewise, there's also presently been a renewal of rather overt paganism. And just one example of this is, again, in the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, the founders, there's the founder of the, the organization itself and then the founder of the uh, uh, L.A. chapter discussing very overtly that they, uh, the, the importance of ancestor worship in their movement and in their gatherings. Uh, they're, they're, they believe they are, that these dead spirits of their ancestors are working in and through them. I, it's, it, they say it explicitly. And this goes on with really very little pushback. And there's other examples of, of this rise of, of return to pagan practices in other places as well. Uh, the Burning Man Festival, if you've heard of that, a yearly pilgrimage to the Nevada desert. And the who's who of Silicon Valley have been to this thing. And so even now, there is a, a reverting to this sort of these, this spiritism and, and pagan practices and worship. Somewhat of a renewal of an understanding of spiritual forces. And yet, if some higher power sounds fascinating, or maybe sounds terrifying, be reminded that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what he's saying here. He's the head of all rule and authority. The fullness of deity dwells in him. There are supernatural powers. Um, I, I think naturalism has infected the church uh, broadly in evangelicalism, to where it's difficult for us to even... We, we tend to just think of the world, view the world as mostly natural causes, and, and God's, you know, doesn't really seem at work at times and places. And even if people approach the scriptures, Christians do, and it's just kind of they read it like any other book, and they, they're hesitant to make connections between Old Testament and New Testament because 
you know, they're not, they're not really sure if Isaiah could have fully understood what he was talking about. And, and there's all kinds of ways that this naturalism can infect us. But we do live in a world which has been created by God. He does act and uphold this by his providence. He is acting in every moment. He, the Lord Jesus upholds this whole thing by the word of his power. There are spiritual forces of, for good angels and there are demonic powers, and Satan is a real being. And so our response to paganism is not simply, that's silly. It's, that's, that's wicked, and it's dangerous. There are supernatural powers but the Lord Jesus stands at the head of all rule and authority. And again, as we'll see into verse 14 and 15, he's, for those in Christ, he's disarmed any authority they might have over his children. So again, we have the person of Christ, his full deity dwelling in him, in his humanity. The fact that he is the head of all rule and authority and how it is we need to keep this in mind. That we need to be rooted in these great truths. Be reminded of this and not be ashamed of this. Jesus was not just a good teacher. He was not just a mere man. He is the eternal son of God. He is no mere holy man. No mere prophet of God. Nothing less than the second person of the Trinity. God himself who has come in human form. And so... Who else do you need on your side? What other words do you seek? What other philosophy do you figure he might be lacking? What perspective, what analysis of culture or perspective on the world is essential that he has not revealed? What deficiency is there in his word or in his work? course nothing and to suggest there is any is to blaspheme him in isaiah 43 11, the lord declares before me no god was formed nor shall there be any after me i i am the lord and beside me there is no savior if you remember in verse 22 of isaiah 45 we read earlier Again, this declaration that there is no Lord beside. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. It's right for us to understand this coming from Christ. He is the fullness of deity. And he even goes on in 23 to say, To me every knee shall bow. Which is, reminds me, makes me think of Philippians 2. That every knee will bow to Christ and acknowledge that he is Lord. That would be blasphemy if he wasn't actually God. And as the eternal son, he's taken on a human nature. He's come in bodily form. And the eternal Son has offered himself on behalf of sinners in his true humanity, substituted in 
for his people to earn our righteousness and die for our sins, turning back the wrath of the holy triune God against sinners. And though all mankind is born dead in our trespasses and in our sins, deserving judgment for our sins, God says that all who repent and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved, will be forgiven and granted eternal life, that this will be graciously given to all who receive Jesus by faith. And of course, we know Jesus did not stay dead. His physical human body, though buried, rose forth from the grave in victory over death. And now, with the name that is above all names, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is glorified, he is at the Father's right hand, where he awaits the day when he will return and he will bring all things back under subjection to God, ushering in the full form of the kingdom of God. This is the one that Paul says in verse 6, you have received when you believed in him. He has come to you in saving power, and he is none other than God himself. And so to whom else shall you turn? Who else do you need? If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And Paul has said in verse 3 that in him, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This would be blasphemous except for the fact that in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In his commentary, John Davenant said, As often as seducers endeavor to lead us away from the gospel and from Christ to their traditions and inventions, we must seriously reflect what kind of savior and teacher Christ Jesus was. Namely, one in whom dwelt all the fullness of Godhead. And it is the height of madness to require new teachers after him. Whatever pressure might come, whatever temptation there might be, no other teacher, nobody else will have the qualifications of the Son of God. So we have the, the person of Jesus. And secondly, we're reminded of the provision, the provision of Jesus. So again, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So we have these statements about the person of Christ in verse 9. He's the fullness of deity, dwells bodily. And then in the second half of verse 10, he's the head of all rule and authority. And in the middle, it speaks of how we have all that we need from him through our union with him. That word fill, where he says you have been filled, uh, it has a couple of different senses to it. And we have to determine the best meaning here. If Paul is speaking of being filled up with something, like a substance here, uh, then he's not explicit, explicit about what it is. Uh, we've been filled in him, but filled with what? It's not really explicit. But this word can also mean fulfilled or complete. That's how the New American Standard Bible and, and various other English translations take it. Uh, the NASB says, and in him you have been made complete. 
And I think the context tells us that this is the best way to understand this. If we just zoom out a little bit here, Paul's telling us of the sufficiency of Jesus. The sufficiency of his work, the gospel, to save us. It is in Christ where true riches of wisdom and knowledge are to be found. We're to walk in him, to live our lives in him as we've received him. We're to guard against being swept away by empty philosophies. Then in verses 11 to 15, he's going to go on to describe the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. A work most assuredly complete and finished. And so these other teachings and works that are being added to this gospel in Colossae are things that would disqualify them from Christ, as you'll say in verse 18. They're empty. They're according to worldly philosophies and principles. And so his point here is that when a person is made new by the Spirit of God, they repent of their sin, they trust in Christ, that person is truly saved, truly forgiven. That the work that Christ has done is sufficient for them to be justified before God. That nothing more is needed as the grounds of salvation. No one else is necessary. No other teaching required. This in him language uh, very often refers to a believer's union with Christ. What is called union with Christ. It is that we are united to him spiritually when we believe, when we, when we are regenerated and believe. We are his. We belong to him. And all that is Christ's belongs to us. We are granted his righteousness, credited to us as if it is ours. His death for sin is our death to sin. We're going to see this next week. It's as if we've died with him. And likewise, as he rose from the dead, so we too are raised to spiritual life, to walk in newness of life. All of this getting at, again, the sufficiency of what Christ has done and accomplished. In Ephesians 1 verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, there's that union language, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is, all the blessings of salvation are ours, flow to us, because of our union with Christ. Which happened when we believed the gospel. We, we, we cannot improve upon this. Here in Colossians 2, Paul says, In the person of Jesus resides the fullness of God, and you have been made full or complete in him through being united to him by faith. Because of who he is, the fullness of deity in human form, because of what he has done, he is enough. He is sufficient to render our salvation complete. And so it is finished. You need nobody else. You do not need wisdom from outside of Christ. And remember, even Paul, he's commissioned by Christ as his apostle to bring Christ's word to the church. And here we are just trying to understand the word of God through Paul. 
and to stand on it. We're not improving upon anything. The work of Christ is finished. His wisdom is what we need. The Lord's glory and saving is not shared with another. And so we are called by Paul to abide, to simply abide in Christ, to remain in him, to continue on, to walk in him as we've received him. And God will sanctify his children as we do this, as we continue on in Christ. We do not add works to Christ's work in order to be saved. We do not add others to Christ as there is only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Even our own good works, even our own good works are not adding anything to this. They're not contributing to our justification in any way. And even some in our time confuse this matter. They speak of our works as if our final salvation somehow is dependent on our faithfulness, on our works. But works are evidence. They will vindicate that we belong to the Lord on the last day. But they are never, they're necessary in that sense, but they are never necessary as any grounds of salvation, as any grounds of our justification. We will all only ever be with the Lord because of what Christ has done. Our own works do not contribute to justification in any way. Uh, if you flip over to chapter 3 even, when Paul does summon these Colossians to action again a bit later, not only is it after the first couple chapters where he has continually gone over gospel truths, but even when he is about to give them direct commands about putting off and putting on what we should put to death, what virtues we should pursue, notice how he phrases it. It's a summons to faithful living because of everything that believers already are and possess by faith in Christ. So he says, if then, if then you have been raised with Christ, done, that's a work of God and his grace, to you, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And he goes on, put to death, therefore, what is earthly among you. So Christ has made perfect provision for you. This is the good news. This is gospel. This is grace. It's done. Christ has purchased it. We can drift into thinking that our own internal righteousness and acts somehow you know, give us a great confidence before the Lord. And we can, be get, we can get so down and discouraged in the dumps when we are having trouble and difficulty living righteous lives. And it's true that sin is sin and it's an offense before God. 
But we have to remind ourselves of who Christ is and what he has done and rest ourselves there. You can lift your head because you have a great Savior. Yes, you've failed miserably again. This is why we look to who Christ is. Nobody else, not even you, are going to improve upon what he has done. The fullness of deity dwells in him, and he has worked salvation sufficient for you. And so all of these other ideas that would add to this, that would twist these things, are to be avoided. These are things that would take us captive, destroy your joy, moving you on from Christ. All that we need to stand before God is found in Christ. His provision is sufficient. In Him you are complete. And so rest here. Just as we close, I want to read from John 6. I'm starting in verse 66. You can turn there if you want. I find this, honestly, to be one of the greatest texts. It's my, I mean, it's just my opinion. I'm not pitting Scripture against Scripture, but one of the most encouraging texts. Jesus had fed the 5,000. Of course, we know that's talking about men. So there were probably, with women, plus women and children, it's probably more like 20,000. Again, that naturalism starts to kick in. Really? Could that happen? The fullness of deity dwelled in him bodily. That happened. And as a result, the crowds are amazed by this because that doesn't normally happen. <laughs> and all these people are flocking after him, chasing after him, amazed by what he's done. So excited about him. And yet he sees right through it all. He knows they're just seeking him because they ate and had their fill. And he begins to teach them. He begins to teach them hard truths. And they just start to walk away from him. This excitement was fleeting. And then in verse 66 of John 6, it says, After this, many of his disciples, note that, disciples, followers of Jesus, they've made some commitment to him, they've left something and followed him, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. For all of Peter's miserable failures, this is a beautiful response. We don't know what all he understood at this particular moment. We don't know how confused he might have been watching people wander off and walk away and all this excitement and it seemed to fizzle out. We know that he would yet make some grave errors and deny Christ the night he was arrested. He very well may have been confused and uncertain about many things here in John 6, but he knew and he believed that the words and the wisdom needed were found in Christ. And he knew that Jesus was the Holy One of God and there was nowhere else to turn. 
There was no one else to turn to. And even after his later failures, he still knew that he needed the Lord Jesus and was repentant and broken in his heart when the Lord Jesus confronted him after his resurrection. He knew Jesus was the Holy One of God and he had the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else to go. Well, the Word of God declares to you today that in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you, if you have faith in Christ, you've repented of your sin, you're trusting in Him, and you have been filled or made complete in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. And so I ask you, to whom else shall you go? Whatever pressure might come, whatever difficulty or challenge might be lay ahead for you, to whom shall you go? What is it that anyone else can give you that's greater than what Christ gives you? All that you need before God is found in Christ. Rest here. Find your sufficiency here, your joy here. And when that temptation comes to look elsewhere or to compromise or even to give up, look again to the person of Christ, to the provision that he has made for sinners, and be reminded that there's nowhere else to turn and just stay here. Quiet your soul on this truth. Rejoice in your Savior and stay the course. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have done in Christ. Thank you for the reminder of who your Son is. And I just pray that we would be confident of this, that you would strengthen our faith in this reality, that we might proceed to do the works you call us to, to do them as joyfully as we can, and to confess quickly when we fail and sin, to rest in what Christ has done. I pray that this would fill us with great joy, that you would strengthen us in this truth of your grace. Father, whenever pressure comes to sin in any way, but certainly when, when pressure comes to compromise on the truths of your word, to ch compromise on the gospel, may we have the courage and strength to just stay here, to stay put. Father, thank you for this reminder in your word. Bless it to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.